You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. All right, in Revelation, you can turn there if you'd like with me. I'm going to be hopping around a little bit like we've done in this, in this series. I'm just going to begin by reading uh, probably one or two verses, and then later on we'll read some of the passages uh, in more detail. I'll be mentioning them. But in Revelation 21, this is um, kind of the episode four. We're going to title today, Epilogue is the name of this message. Revelation 21, verse one. And I'll look at verse one through three here just to start to give us a setting and then we'll, we'll walk through it. Uh, Revelation 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Verse two, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven of God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We'll pause there for now. So this story of this long story short or this short story long, depending on whatever opinion you have of it, uh, we've done the entire story of the Bible, uh, finishing today uh, in one summer. So I'm I'm patting myself on the back for that, okay? So (laughs) we've done pretty good. Uh, We've we've kept it moving. Uh, I remember some of you came to me the first, or maybe it was the third or fourth message. You were like, yo, um, you're the fourth message in and we're still in Genesis. So, you know, um, we, we spent a lot of time at the beginning and then we flew through some of the middle and then kind of towards the end here in the New Testament, uh, we walked through some of that aspect and, and now we're here in Revelation. But we started there with creation and then the fallout. I always remember that with the fall in Genesis 3 and then we looked into Abraham and how God kind of reset things and we see that then from Noah and the flood we see God calling Abraham setting him aside and kind of seeking to bless him and this covenant that he makes with Abraham. And then from there we see Jacob and the formation of the nation of Israel, of, of Israel where Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Then they're away in this foreign land under slavery in Egypt and God delivers and brings Moses to deliver the people. And we see Moses being this pivotal figure of the book of Exodus as he leads them out of this land into eventually where Joshua will lead them into this promised land, this promised inheritance, where they then form themselves as an actual nation with a land. And then David brings this land to a kingdom where God calls uh, David and anoints him and he becomes the king, the really greatest king of all of Israel, which becomes maybe the best type of Christ, which is to come the one king that would eventually unite all peoples under one nation. 
And we see David being that figure there. And yet, David wasn't perfect. He had his faults as well and his children. And, and, and then following them, his legacy, uh, what happened is the kingdom was divided. And remember, I, I gave Josh, pray that that messenger, he had all the bad news of all the bad kings and all the division and all the difficult challenge that I gave him. That, that was a tough one. But it is a, a powerful message where they continually left uh, what God had given them. They neglected the law. They neglected following God. And they divided the kingdom to north and south and there was eventually they were taken away into exile. And while they're taken away into exile, we see the prophets still speaking where God doesn't leave his people. The prophets come into play where the prophets are speaking on behalf of God, the message of God, thus says the Lord. They're saying and, and preaching truth to the people in the northern and southern kingdoms and then even prophets that are speaking God's word and his truth to the people who are far taken away into exile. And that's really the major and minor prophets. And then we looked at uh, some of the, the major works of this time of intermission, right? Before the intermission of season one and season two, uh, we see Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and some of these big major prophets having these grand messages of hope for a future that would come one day, an eventual temple that would be built, um, this, this hope for these dry bones that would eventually rise up into new life and, and a spirit that would one day come and fill people and be poured out in Joel and, and you all these messages of looking forward to a day that would dawn where, where the, the, the sun would rise with healing in his wings and all of these messages. And then you have this intermission, this time period, and then all of a sudden out of the blue seemingly for us, it says that uh, when the time was right, when it was, time was fulfilled, when it was ready, when the world was ready to receive the Messiah came, right? And that was the beginning message of season two where it almost seems the entire Bible is working to this pinnacle, this climax where Jesus Christ comes and he dwells with man, our Emmanuel, God with us, and the cross and the resurrection and all of that means. And then from that, that message, that climax, we have this falling action where now we are given this message of the gospel, this good news that the Messiah has come and he has provided a way of salvation and peace and shalom and, and now he's reconciled you with a God and now you too can be made new and this, this message of the gospel has now been entrusted to the disciples, to the apostles and to the church that is founded at this time, this little fledgling church that's growing and it's this message of preaching the good news go into all the world and make disciples of all nations starting with Jerusalem then Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and then to Jaffer, New Hampshire right and that's that's us and then that's us because we're still doing that uh, 2,000 years later the church has encapsulated that message and yeah our churches today maybe look or function or look a little different than they did then because you people look a lot different than they did then too right uh, and we operate differently but yet the formation and the real function and the basic level of a church has remained unchanged for thousands of years and so we find ourselves in an assembly, a gathered people who are preaching this message of the gospel and the gospel spreads from Acts and into the epistles as into the church life where Paul starts preaching into different challenges that the church faces, right? Because the church doesn't have it all figured out and then you see in Corinthians and Colossians and Ephesians and all these messages of preaching truth and, and teaching doctrine and, and growing believers into a sustainable, healthy congregation and that's what we see in the church and this message and this work that's continuing continuing today, all right? So that was one long strung on sentence, okay, from Genesis to, I don't know, the end of the New Testament. And then today we arrive at the simplest book of them all, uh, Revelation, right? <laughs> Some of you are laughing and not, you know, you're like, uh, well, luckily today I'm not gonna answer all of your questions about Revelation. We are gonna be looking at the big ideas of Revelation. 
I've, I avoided getting into some of the nitty gritty because I just don't have time today. And you know me, I get bogged down. So we, we, we don't have time to do that. But I have been considering just as I've been reading this book of Revelation and just fascinated with it recently, you know, wanting to do more dives into it later on in the future. So I've been praying through that. But the book of Revelation leads us to the end. And that's really what we're talking about today. And this message is entitled the epilogue. It's not a word we use very often. Uh, it's, a, it's a word, epilogue basically means words attached at the end. <laughs> it's almost like Revelation is this add-on, very odd, you know, awkward thing at the end. It's kind of like all the other books work in this way and then Revelation, everyone's like, what are you doing here, you know? And when you read it, it's so different. It's unlike any of the other books we see, especially in the New Testament. It's probably more akin to books like Ezekiel and some of these major prophets. But an epilogue, and it's this wrapping up the story at the end. Uh, you could say today in books or novels, you might read a, a foreword, which is like a prologue at the beginning, kind of a, rev, a Genesis one and two, and then a, a, an epilogue or an afterword at the end, right? Uh, we often don't think in the form of books today, because I don't know, some, just a few of us actually read books anymore, but in, in seasons and videos and cinema, right, you still have those kinds of things where the whole story has kind of been formed and happened and the climax has happened and now uh, you could say that the two people who are at odds now are back together again and they get together in a diner at the end of the movie and they're having coffee and they're laughing and they're talking about now the future of happily ever after of what that's gonna look like, right? The movie wasn't about the happily ever after in the future. It was all about the conflict and the challenge and the climax and middle and then at the end, they're gathering around breakfast or something and they're laughing and then the, the, the screen kind of zooms out from the diner and zooms out and they're continuing to talk about that future. So I'm trying to put this picture of what, in a sense, Revelation seems to be for us. The exciting climax has happened and yet it almost seems like there's another climax that we're headed to. And it's almost like this was almost a false one and we're headed to, to what might even be better in this longing for this future time, this Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will be together around a table feasting and celebrating in the reception that is taking place. Right? This, is, this is kind of where we're looking at, headed towards. And so in this long story short, we begin with this concept of creation. And yet where have we all been going to? Where have we been driving to? This hasn't just been a, a fun exercise of an intellectual study of an old ancient book. This has been a real study about life itself, the existence of humanity and the big questions of your life. Why are you here? What's your purpose for being here? Why do you even exist? And what happens after death? These are the big questions that the Bible seeks to, that the fact is that when we read the Bible, we are really having a destination in mind. We are really driving somewhere, right? In the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible begin with creation, right? And then when you read through the whole Bible and you look at the very last two chapters of the Bible, the verse we just read, you know what it be ends with? It ends with a new creation, you could say a recreation. We begin with creation in Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. We end with a new creation, a recreation of the new heavens and new earth, it says. 
Randy Alcorn, it's a book I'll be quoting for you a variety of different times throughout today's message, a book that's very, been very helpful for me as a pastor as I go through a variety of different funerals with people and, and even going through and grieving loss on my own and I think often about heaven and what is to come, where it is we are going and what it is that we're hoping for and where is it that we're driving this ship you know, or, or is, that, is that how you drive a ship? I don't know. This is more a ship, right? This is a car. I don't know. Yeah, so whatever. You get it. We're driving towards somewhere, and the illustration's breaking down. Where are we headed, right? Randy Alcorn says it in his book that what was lost at the beginning, right, will be restored at the end. Right? So we understand the fall and the loss that is experienced in Genesis 3. What is it that God's been doing over these thousands of years of humanity? What is it that he did at the cross? And where is it that we're hoping to enjoy in one day? That all will be restored one day. Uh, Gregory Beale says it this way, it's the story of the new creation. The Bible uh, is filled with this original creation which is corrupted. And the rest of the Old Testament is a redemptive historical process working toward a restoration of fallen creation into new creation, including both you and me and the earth itself. Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 through 20 talks about this idea that, that it is in Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It says that by him all things were created. Crazy, right? By him all things were created. In him and through him and for him. And then it says, that through him to reconcile to himself all things. It was created, it was for him, it was through him, and it is now going to be reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And by doing this, he has made peace. It's a picture of reconciling all things back to God, whether it is on earth or it is in heaven, the creation. Albert Walters says it this way, redemption means restoration. That is this return to the goodness. Remember that word tov we always talked about way back in the day? Totally tov, I'm still trying to keep that hashtag going, right? Tov, 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 this good, good, good. It's the Hebrew word for good. It's all good there, but do we ever return to the good? Is there ever a hope that things will be totally tov one day? Is there a hope? Yes, there is. Revelation tells you about this hope that we long for. So he says redemption means restoration. That is the return to the goodness of an originally unscathed creation and not merely by an addition of something supra-creational, but this restoration affects the whole creational life, not merely some limited area within it. Randy Alcorn goes on and gives this illustration of an artist painting and that you have a canvas that he paints. And on this canvas, there is this kind of way where the artist eventually wipes away and chips away the old paint, the old stains that are cracking and fading. And he starts anew with a better painting, but using the same images of the same canvas. He doesn't take the canvas and throw it away. He creates something new and even more beautiful from what exists from the, from the base. And Peter speaks of a fire in 2 Peter 3 that speaks of a fire, a dissolving flame that will come at the end. This cleansing fire, almost like a flood, this sense, to kind of wipe it clean but start afresh, provide this new soil, something that burns away, as Jesus says, the wood, hay, and stubble, 
and refines the gold that is left, that what we do here in this earth presently now actually matters for something. Albert Walters goes on and says in this same concept in Second Peter, confirms the basic ideal which is also expressed in the language of Romans 8, that the new heavens and the new earth will issue forth this from God's sovereign and redemptive work. It will involve the renewal of all things, not the total creation of all new things, but it follows that life to come in the new creation will be rich and full of activity in the service of the Lord as it was intended from the beginning. We find throughout church history, even in the, the ancient, some of those who have written long, long before us of Augustine and Jerome and Gregory the Great and Thomas Aquinas and so many others speak about this teaching of this new heaven and the new earth that today, if I'm speaking for myself, I rarely ever think about. <laughs> I, I rarely ever think about the creation of what God is aiming us for in our eventual resting eternal place with him on the new heaven and the new earth. I, I often just think about getting out of here right now, right? Or, or escaping whatever it is I'm in and, and not thinking about heaven very much at all. And then when we think about even the work of the Holy Spirit within us that renews within us this new life, this new creation, it is a renewal and it is a, as the word is, a metamorphosis. It is a transformation from within that is the kind of first fruits of our new creation that we long to see one day when he totally renovates and renews the entire universe. We see within us the start of it this renewal, this sanctification process that Jordan Moody was an old man but now he is a new man in Christ that I have been renewed and I'm being renewed and being sanctified and I'm being transformed and yet I'm still Jordan, that's still who I am. God has not thrown me away, thrown me aside and started with something completely new but he has transformed me from within. That is a beautiful story of really what it means in the story of the entire Bible. The story of the Bible, as we said, begins in the garden. Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation. And then we find in Revelation 21 and 22, we end in a garden with a new creation. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Genesis 2, 9. It says, and out of the ground the Lord God made spring up from every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then Revelation 21, one, uh, 22, verses one and two. And the angel showed me a river out of this garden-like place, this river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river. What tree do we find at Revelation 22, the final chapter of the Bible? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit in each month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Story of the Bible begins with this newness and ends with newness. It begins with a, a, a creation and a recreation. It begins with life and ends with eternal life. It begins with God and it ends with God. It begins with, you could say, with God and ends with God or it maybe is more accurately said it continues with God. For the end that we see in Revelation is not really much of an end. It's really just the beginning of forever. 
We long for this forever. We long for a heaven. We, we cringe at the thought of hell. And, and because of our longing for heaven, we, we long to be there and get there. But where is there and what is that? I think the Bible speaks very little of getting to heaven as we would think of it in our mind. But it does speak of heaven as the place where God dwells, a place where we can actually, as the New Testament speaks of it more often, of being present with the Lord, being with Jesus, being with our God. For God himself has come and dwelt with us. And where will the dwelling place of God be one day? Revelation 21.3. And I hear, hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The book of Revelation and really the end and what we're looking forward to, this story of the Bible, it reminds us of one amazing fact. One amazing fact. That God will dwell with man, that God ultimately is, is in heaven. We are here, we, that we were separated and yet when the fall happened, the, the amazing fact really that we can think about in the whole entire story of the Bible is he, <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't, leave us he stays with us and he is aiming to make all things new the end of the story is not God wiping out and starting over and restore but rather this this restorative process of redemption what was lost in its former glory that through Jesus will now be brought back to its original function and glory and its toveness, its good. For its original purpose is now, it has a greater weight of glory than it ever had before. For now, saved humanity in the presence of God knows the greatness of God's grace that we could never have perceived from in the beginning. It's in the story of God, not forsaking his creation, not leaving us, but rather renovating it, restoring it, and saving it by himself. And the blessing it brings with a rich inheritance for eternity, an inheritance we don't deserve, but one we have received through God's grace, our eventual eternal resting place, if this heavenly eternal existence for those who believe in Jesus is not this heavenly cloudy existence where we, where we right, float among the stars and, and we play harps all day long and for some of us who think of heaven and the future like an eternal church service, some of you are almost more afraid of that than, than going to the opposite direction, right? You're like, I couldn't imagine having heaven be simply that. And so in our hearts, when we long for where we're headed, we, we must think properly about our future. And I think the point of for us today in this final message of this story is to really encapsulate the entire story of the Bible, that we are headed in a direction that there is for us all to consider the afterlife and to consider the return of Christ. That, that it's not just about what we think of as just um, life continuing. What is that? What does it mean? Where are we headed? But about a new heaven and a new earth, God bringing two things together that have been separated. Let's not forget that this is a package deal, almost a convergence of these things. 
where God has brought two regions of man and the region of man, the region of God together again in perfect shalom, this heaven and earthness. And maybe for me, I was like, wow, just thinking about this allows me to just anticipate a future life with God being more and better and more beautiful than just uh, like a, a Cupid floating on the clouds. What is that? How would I even long for that? And look at what the Bible says about what we're headed towards and what we look to. I already read Revelation 21, one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. This new earth, and then he goes on to describe it in 21 and 22. But if you look at Isaiah 65, verse 17, it says, for behold, I create, in, in Isaiah 65, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, this kind of former old man sin kind of thing. And Isaiah 66, 22 goes on as well. Isaiah 66, 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, and so shall your offspring and your name remain. And 2 Peter 3, 13. 2 Peter 3, 13 says, but according to his promise, the promise of Jesus, the promise of the hope that we have in him, the living hope that Peter speaks about. But according to his promise, we are waiting. Do we find ourselves there? We are waiting for what? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This, the sense of pure, righteous, holiness, peace. In this place, which we would describe that's heavenly, would we not? <laughs> that place sounds heavenly. And that's the picture we have in this mind of this future of a place where righteousness dwells totally holy and complete. After the culmination of the end times and all these things, we long for this heavenly existence. It really, you could say, a heavenly garden-like relationship with God again like we had in the beginning. So we're looking forward to that looking forward, and I think the Bible often speaks about that in Hebrews, that Abraham was looking forward to a city not made with hands. Uh, this, this city that he was longing for, he was looking to see, that he had not yet received but longed for, this hope, as Hebrews 11 says, this, this faith that we have is what is to come. We look forward to a whole lot of things. And for those of us who lost loved ones, we look forward to things. We look forward to seeing again, meeting again. This is part of our hope. This is part of our faith. And this is what makes Christianity so amazing. That it isn't just this uh, force that we're absorbed into nothingness and lacking personality and physical existence. For then we would never meet our loved ones again. But rather, Christianity stands separate from most religions in that we have a very physical actual hope of a physical bodily uh, resurrection and a bodily existence in the future and an earth that we live on in the future. This hope is real, physical, tangible, and it is with God. It is not something ethereal or, or far apart. And that brings me hope as well, for I know physically that I will meet them again one day and I can't wait for that day. And so heaven, this sense of heaven, the sense of heaven and earth, and for millennia, people have been asking these questions that we just talked about. What happens after we die? Will I see my loved ones again? What happens when uh, we reject the Lord? What happens when we receive the Lord? What, what happens when we die? What's next? What's next? 
theologians talk about the next in this time is that we look at the return of Christ. And the word there in the New Testament is perusia or parousia, which is the return. This time when we long to see the return of Jesus, the second advent, where he will come. As the scripture talks about, he will come and he comes to judge the world and also to restore it. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. It certainly will as we sing. But what does that look like? And I think it matters a great deal the way we think about it. I think it matters a great deal the way we read and think about uh, the importance of where we're longing for and where we're headed. I think it can be confusing oftentimes to think about these things of what we have not yet seen and to interpret challenging passages of scripture like Revelation. But I think we can often get strung up in the weeds with and we forget and miss the hope that brings us together. And so what does it mean to uh, long for a place when God will make all things new? And I think we long for these things of, of where our spirit will be when meeting our Lord face to face, seeing him once again, this hope that we all have that I long for. And I think it's this concept that I spoke into earlier, this idea of this longing for really a lot of what we see today. Of, of longing within us for something tangible and real. If these things seem tangible and real to us, heaven maybe only seems like this cloudy existence to us. Randy Alcorn says it with an illustration. He talks about how you and I, we don't, we don't long for dirt when we're hungry. Our, our, our stomachs do not say, man, I cannot wait to get home and eat a nice cup of dirt, right? A few rocks in there, like a chicken or something. And you, you, know, you, you, you put that down and you eat and you chew on dirt and mud and nastiness. We, we don't long for that because we're not made for that. Our bodies don't function for that. We don't long to have sustenance in that way. In the same manner, he says, we're, we don't long for this kind of nebulous, impersonal existence because that's not who we are made to be. That's not how God has made us in his image. We don't crave spiritual nothingness because we're physical beings who are imbued and filled with the spirit of God. So heaven or our future state, this sense will be a new heaven and a new earth that has con- converged together. They will exist as one. And so what we do desire, Randy Alcorn says, therefore what we do desire if we admit it is exactly what he promises to those who follow Jesus Christ, a resurrected life in a resurrected body with the resurrected Christ on a resurrected earth. A place where it seems as if heavenly bliss and earthly tangibility are together as one again in wholeness and peace and shalom through the resurrection of Christ. All made possible through that. I mean, even within our Lord's prayer, God taught us to pray. I think there's this inner longing within it. It says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, we long to see that the two would be as one, that God's kingdom and that his rule and reign would exist where we walk, where our areas of influence are, that God in his heavenly purity and holiness would exist and rule and reign in on, on, on earth again. Our prayers cry for that. His rule would be on earth as it is in heaven. The earth would function and work the way it's supposed to a place that no longer groans for redemption as Romans 8 speaks about, 
but rather in Isaiah 65, a place where we think of and see of a, of a whole new heaven, new earth, this heavenly bliss, this perfect place of enjoyment. How is it that we would describe that? Well, one of the areas that Isaiah describes it in is he says, in that place, where there will be no more death, no more this, he says, there will be no more in that place. There will be an infant who lives but just a few days. And no more in that place, an old man who does not fill out his days. This is a place of eternal life. In that place, the wolf shall lay down and dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lay down with the young goat, and a calf and a lion, fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. It's important to think about the future, the heavenly existence, the, the kingdom of God that Jesus has inaugurated. What is our hope set on? And do we long for that return of Christ, that return? And I think we must consider these things as we long and we aim for the future and we live our lives presently hoping for what is to come and planning for it and thinking about it and, and, and longing for it because it, I think, motivates us what we do now because what we do now actually means something for eternity. I, I think uh, a helpful illustration also helped me think this through was uh, one of the illustration I read regarding kind of where we're headed and where we're going and how important it is to consider heaven and the new heaven and the new earth. They were thinking about this in the sense of uh, maybe on the news last uh, couple of years, we've, we've heard lots of talks about heading to Mars, right? And you hear uh, SpaceX or NASA or whatever it is, Elon Musk or whoever this next day is sending a rocket up to wherever they're going, right? Uh, but, but headed to Mars. And if you can even think back a while ago when that seemed like impossible to ever send anything to Mars. And then when maybe some of you are old enough to remember this concept of the moon, right? Getting to there and all the work that it took, right? But then thinking back in history of what went into getting there. I mean, just the incredible achievement of putting a human on the moon. And then is it even possible to consider putting a human on Mars? But think about all that work and all the trigonometry and the mathematics and the funds and the, the money that goes into raising and all the testing, all the rocket builds and failures, all the um, rocket science, right? The mathematics, the developments, the fundraising, the commitments, the time, all the work it takes to get there, all the time it takes to, to finally arrive at that planet and then to finally land it when you get there and then... When you get there, you have no idea why you went in the first place. <laughs> and someone asks you, so what happens when we get there? And you said, well, I've, I've never thought about that before. <laughs> well, then what are we spending these trillions of dollars on? And you're like, well, I'd, I don't know. It seemed like a fun idea at the time, right? I'm going to put this massive rocket together and go to Mars. And now I really have no idea what we do when we get there. I don't even have an inkling. I don't even know why we're going there in the first place. We're just trying to get out of wherever we are now. And I think sometimes if I'm trying to be simple about it, I think at times I can live my life like that where it's just, I don't even want to think about that because I'm just busy building the rocket ship right now to get me out of here. Rather than thinking about and dwelling on the revelation of God, the new heaven and the new earth and the future and the river of life that will be dwelling from this place that I believe helps us consider the hardship, pain, suffering, and brokenness that we experience in this life. For it is revelation that was written to a people of God that were enduring intense persecution. And the book of Revelation that was given to them so that they have hope, they have light at the end of the tunnel. That even in your difficulty right now, it is that in the future, Jesus is coming again. 
This is the hope that we all have, no matter where you are, wherever you find yourself. And he's coming, and it's gonna be better than you can even imagine. And so I think this concept also brings great unity to the church. For in the concept that Jesus is coming again is the one thing that really and truly unites all of Orthodox Christian teaching. And by Orthodox, I mean traditional, one that, uh, re- reliable Christian teaching from the entire thousands years of church history that has passed. What has united the church is the sense of Revelation 22, I am coming soon. And the church responds with, come Lord Jesus. We long for this, this unity of the church that brings us together that in all of us we can argue and bicker or, or even just argue about real points of theology of, of premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation. If you don't know any of those things, don't worry about that right now. The concept is we can argue about all of those things of revelation and, and many of that is very good to talk about but we haven't even considered the fact that Jesus is actually coming again at some point. And we need to be ready for his arrival and nobody knows the day. And we long for his return and we have this excitement, this anticipation building. Almost like my my daughter who cannot wait for Monday to come. You know why? Because school is coming and she's in kindergarten where she still loves school, right? You guys remember those days. She literally told me on Friday, Dad, I can't wait for Monday because school is gonna be here. It's like, oh my word, when does this end in the child's life, right? But right now, they're excited for Monday to come. Right now, in the church timeline of history, it's almost like we're in the weekend, Right, the, the whole week has happened, we're in the weekend, and we cannot wait for Monday to come because we're in that period of the Lord's return could be at any moment. And yet, for you, some of you I know that are listening to this and hearing this, you're still not sure in your relationship with Jesus. You're kind of standoffish with this, and this whole churchy stuff and faith stuff still feels strange for you. I get that, I get that. I don't know maybe if you're in a relationship with Jesus, I don't know where you are at with him. But in particular, when it regards the topic of eternal destinations, there is a certain imminency. There is a certain set that I do not want to fluff over. And as a preacher, I would not be doing my job if I don't impress upon you the urgency of responding to this message, of where you will spend eternity. The sense that there is, that we have spoken about much of today, a new heaven and a new earth and an eternal bliss with God and eternal life. But there is a very real place that the Bible speaks about. This place called hell, whatever you want to describe it as Gehenna, Hades, Sheol. There are a variety of ways of looking into the eternal destination of those who reject a relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no sense that today I want to act as if that is no big deal. For in fact, for you, you make a personal decision. You are going to be presented with that choice at some point in your life. And I urge you to look into this, to see and seek Jesus. For he is the only way and truth and the only life. No man comes to the Father except by him. These are the truths that we recognize that are hard to discover and think about and even grapple with within our hearts and yet the scripture lays it out as clear as day. And so yes, this passage, this message of Revelation, the, the end times, the eschatology, the future of our, uh, our destination, these are important discussions. And yet I wanna remind us and be so thankful that the book of Revelation, as confusing as it is, begins with one of the most simple openings that I've ever read. Revelation 1.1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I really find that opening very comforting. 
The revelation centers on a variety of things and future hope, but that future is all about the fact that Jesus is revealed. This is about Jesus. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you don't have Jesus, if you don't grapple with the things in Revelation in the New Testament, if you don't know who he is, then, then the purpose of Revelation and talking about the hope and the future that we have is all but lost. We find ourselves in a war. We find ourselves in a time period, yes, where we still wage this war, and yet the battle, we long to see it established and consummated upon his return. We long for the return of Jesus Christ. I heard one pastor give an illustration regarding Revelation, the end times, and all of this that we, we almost have experienced as the church kind of in a World War II kind of way of thinking. He says we, we look uh, and we can think about when Jesus came as the D-Day invasion of Europe where D-Day happened, and it was after D-Day, when D-Day was successful, the cross and resurrection, you could say, when D-Day was successful, all the people at that time realized the war was basically over, that the war had been won. The, the now opening into Europe was there, and the allied beaches were taken. It was gonna only be a matter of time till the surrender happened, but it was in between that D-Day where there were battles still fought and lives still lost, but it wasn't until V-E Day, this victory in Europe was declared, that we finally see an end to the battle in the the European theater. And I found that was a helpful for me, thinking through D-Day and V-E Day and the time in between, because we often find ourselves in this place where we still struggle with, not necessarily always with flesh and blood, but this power and principalities that exist that yet God has won the battle, and he says we are more than conquerors, and we long one day for him to return and establish his kingdom forever, a kingdom that will never be destroyed, a kingdom that in Hebrews 12 says that, that the Uh, Yet once more I will shake not only the heavens and the earth. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things are shaken. That is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Let us then be grateful for receiving a kingdom of God that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Revelation uh, 21, one through eight is the passage that I wanna close with today before we come to the table. I want us to just sit and kind of bask for a moment, and then I'm also gonna read Revelation 20, verse 20, right after this. But in Revelation 21, I don't want us to, I've read some of the passages here already, but I want us to consider and have our hearts literally long for this. Like our hearts should cry out to this. And for those of you who have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, this is a great comfort. And it does us much good today to consider this passage and to consider where it is we're longing to go and where it is we long to be for eternity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it says in Revelation 21, and just listen as I read. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth Uh, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore 
for those former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write these things down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. And he said to me, I am, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And at the end in Revelation 22, the last two verses of the entire Bible speak about the coming of Jesus Christ and the words that we even declare within us. He who testifies to these things, verse 20 says, surely I am coming soon, amen. And then we respond with, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we long for your coming. And yet it is in the moment that we experience here together around the table that we we find ourselves gathering together as an assembly to encourage one another. And as your word says in Hebrews, to remind ourselves of these things, to gather together. But the fact is, Lord, that we know we are awaiting your return. We long to see you face to face and we cannot wait to dwell with you forever. For Lord, we praise you for your grace that you decided, you have proven, you have restored and redeemed us. We have reconciled us to yourself and all things back to yourself, Lord, so that we could dwell with you and you, for some amazing reason, would dwell with us. God, we are, we are so thankful for these truths and we praise you for it. Thank you for allowing us to participate together to today of participating with you in the crucifixion and the resurrection, the pictures that we experience today and the spiritual reality that exists within us. God, that you have died, you have given your body, you have shed your blood, and yet you have risen anew. And it is within all of us that we see that new creation rise up within us. And God, we participate in that through the Lord's Supper today. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.